Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I'm your host, Stephen Pinecker, and I just have this great guest that's come, agreed to come on at the last minute today. Um, this is somebody who I'm really excited about because he's. this is part of my new series that I'm doing during the summer on, in, on Thursdays where I do what I call up-and-coming Thursdays, up-and-comers Thursdays. And uh, I want to introduce new podcasts or YouTubers or people that are going to be influencers within Mormonism or important scholars in the future. And one of those people, and I heard so much about him from my uh, my buds at the Elder Bright Brightness podcast, they said, you got to get Jackson on, get Jackson on. So I knew about you before I even met you at the Mormon History mm -hmm. Association. Jackson, welcome to the program. Hi, uh, great to be here. Thank you so much, Steve. So I just want to give a little introduction on Jackson, and we're just going to have a very interesting conversation because uh, Jackson is going to be uh, somebody that's going to be a household name in the scholarly community and perhaps <laughs> in Mormondom as well uh, in, the, in a few years. Uh, so we'll talk a little more about that, but here's the introduction. I, um, uh, Jackson has a Bachelor's of Arts degree in Religious Study and History from Arizona State University, graduating summa cum laude with honors. This fall, he will be attending Harvard Divinity School to begin his Master's of Theological Studies program, focusing in the history of Christianity. And your interests are Mormon studies, Armenian studies, we'll maybe get to that, Biblical studies, Christian history, and theology. Uh, I have so excited to have you on. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because you are going to be, I think, the next generation of top-notch apologists for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I think you have a very interesting uh, message to say. And I want to start in an area that I think we can find some convergence with mm -hmm. my worldview and your worldview, uh, which is that you've taken a great interest in grace and in the Book of Mormon. Now, before we talk about that, I think it's so cool because you have a background, not only as a Latter-day Saint, but also within the evangelical world. Tell us mm -hmm. a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, essentially, I was raised in a uh, fully uh, Latter-day Saint household. Uh, both parents came from, uh, you know, several generations of faithful Latter-day Saints. And when I was 12 years old, um, my mother um, converted out of Mormonism and became a non-denominational Christian. Uh, she remained a non-denominational Christian uh, from um, uh, most of my high school experience. Uh, she'd probably identify as more secular or non-religious now. But um, uh, during my early teenage and, and high school years, I was actively attending both faith communities. Um, I would go to my father's uh, LDS ward on Sunday, and I would go as well to my mom's non-denominational church and uh, during the week, I would go to uh, like uh, small group Bible studies on Tuesday and Mormon Boy Scouts on Wednesday and summer camps for both. So um, early on at a very formative age, I had uh, this really kind of unique exposure to a whole different faith tradition. And uh, while that was interesting to uh, figure out personally and navigate both as a family and uh, for myself, uh, I'm very grateful for that kind of like early interfaith uh, exposure and upbringing because I completely uh, think that it's influenced so much of who I am today. Hmm. And you were exposed to some different ideas that you wouldn't have normally learned at a in a, in a ward a standard ward house uh, in in your tradition because you started hearing about the concept of grace within a within a Protestant context. And what was your yeah. reaction to that? 
Yeah, um, you know, I, I had uh, encountered uh, or heard Grace mentioned in various contexts within uh, Mormonism growing up. Uh, but one thing that was uh, really valuable with my mom's church is that grace, uh, you know, specifically the grace of, of Jesus Christ and, and within his atonement um, was so central to uh, essentially every, uh, every sermon and, and uh, lesson and discussion that we had. Um, it, was, it was very much front and center. And at least uh, compared to my early upbringing, um, uh, that was a, a bit of a contrast uh, to the, my Latter-day Saint experience. Now, I've also witnessed uh, Latter-day Saints since that time uh, collectively focus a lot more on grace and speak about it a lot more. And so I very much feel uh, that I've been able to witness through the course of my own life uh, some uh, significant shifts uh, to focus in more in that direction and have more robust conversations about what grace is within a Latter-day Saint context. But it was uh, at my mom's church that, uh, in my opinion, um, I really first encountered uh, Christ's grace in a, in a personal experiential sense, right? It, was, uh, it wasn't just a term I was hearing. It was something that I, that I experienced and became uh, deeply important to me. Um, that's very interesting. And so did you, would you have said you possibly had what could be considered a born-again experience within that context? Or, You know, um, uh, with some of the different summer camps I went to at my mom's church, um, I, I would probably say so. Um, you know, I, I think that can mean different things to different people. But uh, in terms of really feeling uh, not just uh, convicted of my personal sin, but also uh, feeling the need to be fully dependent on a redeeming savior um, uh, that, that's something that moved, uh, more from something in the abstract to something that was real and personal to me. And, uh, it was, my mom's church was a major catalyst for that taking place. So, um, you, uh, have decided to, you have chosen to stay within the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mm -hmm. And, um, you have, but you have taken some of what you have learned over into your faith community. Now, mm -hmm. it is interesting because over the course of the last few decades, we have seen a movement with many apologetics and, and, and within apologists within Mormonism that are moving in a grace direction. Mm -hmm. And that, that's definitely now I often think of that poor BYU professor who talked about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ in the early 80s and Bruce R. McConkie <laughs> just crushed the guy. Right. I don't know if you know that story, but uh, Eugene England. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that I've devastated the person. And just to see that that was in that was pretty much the standard uh, position that people took then. And now we're seeing over the course of the last few decades, a move towards grace, which I think is yeah. important. Very yeah. Important. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, specifically when it comes to Bruce R. McConkie and, and earlier iterations of, uh, of the Latter-day Saint tradition, um, I do feel like uh, some of that did come from almost like a reactionary movement against uh, 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 kind of evangelical Christianity within, within America. Um, so at the same time where you have individuals like Billy Graham uh, becoming incredibly prominent, um, uh, Latter-day Saints might feel like uh, the messages of grace that they are either interpreting or hearing from various Christians um, it feels, uh, um, I don't mean this in a, in a, in a mean sense, but you know, like cheap, right? Like, uh, and, and for me, um, hearing Latter-day Saints sometimes describe, uh, like Christian beliefs about grace, sometimes there's caricatures there, right? You know, uh, this, this depiction of, 
certain Christians believing that uh, once once you're saved by grace, you can sin as much as you want or something like that, right? Um, so uh, yeah, I, I mean, there's there's some misunderstanding there, but I was very grateful to be able to be in those spaces and and come to like a more accurate understanding. Um, I'm just really curious, where do you think the cross will ever pray, play a role in your church? Um, I think it did once upon a time, uh, historically speaking. And uh, um, I think the reason it uh, fell out of prominence and almost, you know, adopt, uh, took on this almost uh, uh, social or cultural taboo uh, was because of uh, sentiments of uh, anti-Catholicism that uh, crept into the faith in the early 20th century. Um, before that, uh, you had various maybe editions of LDS scripture that were printed with crosses on them. Uh, you had uh, at least one uh, Mormon prophet buried uh, with like a cross decorating his coffin. I think that was Joseph F. Smith. It was one of the it was one of the Joseph Smiths, right? Um, uh, but um, yeah, it was uh, it it used to be uh, that that taboo didn't always exist, right? And so. Um, that's something as well that I'm seeing within LDS circles, uh, some, some serious introspection about like, why is it that we've had this kind of cultural reservation about the cross? And once you get into the history, once you start breaking these things down, I've, I've encountered a number of Latter-day Saints recently who are not just like uh, um, uh, friendly towards the cross, but actively want to incorporate it into uh, their sense of uh, religious identity or or maybe uh, iconography like in their house or something like that. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, Bruce Van Orman and I had a convers similar conversation about that. And I told him, like, you'd look at these old photographs of some of Brigham Young's wives and they were wearing crosses, you know. Yeah. And so yep. mm -hmm. the cross has been there all along. It's uh, I'd like to see them move towards that. Um, I think be I'm partly because I'm thinking, you know, I want to bring build bridges and reconciliation between our camps. And I'm just trying to think of different ways we can we can work this out. Yeah. Um, you know, I, a couple of things I sometimes, there are a couple of doctrinal differences um, that we do have. Uh, and, and I was talking to some, some evangelicals the other day and I said, if the LDS could make exaltation more like the Greek, uh, more like the Eastern Orthodox view of apotheosis, Mm -hmm. And if they can say that Heavenly Mother is Mary, then we maybe have a way of getting you guys somehow in within Christianity. What do you think of those yeah. two propositions? Yeah, well, um, you know, uh, there, there have been various uh, comparisons uh, between uh, like Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy on both those two counts when it comes to Mormonism. Um, you know, of course, there's significant differences there uh, as well. Um, the, the Mormon concept of exaltation uh, assumes that God and humanity are uh, ontologically of the same kind, whereas uh, in uh, more of an uh, either a Roman Catholic or, or Eastern Orthodox, or I guess you could just say like historical Christian concept of it, um, that creature-creator dichotomy is still, uh, you know, in existence, but, uh, you know, individuals are able to uh, more closely and fully participate in, uh, in uh, God's energies or God's grace, right? Um, so, uh, you know, th th there'd be some uh, kind of foundational theological points that would need to shift there. Um, and then when it comes to uh, Mary, um, I mean, that, that would be really interesting. I, I've had some dialogues with, uh, with Catholics about that. Um, and uh, I mean, uh, yeah, that, that would be, 
there, there would be some other things that would need to shift in Latter-day Saint thought for that to happen too, right? The, this concept of, of Heavenly Mother is very much often uh, tied with uh, the, the notion of uh, right, exaltation, meaning that individuals can become gods or goddesses. Uh, and there's usually like uh, 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 procreative um, uh, elements to the belief of, El of Heavenly Mother as well. Uh, so yeah, those factors would probably need to be sorted out too, but, um, I, yeah, um, yeah, it's always interesting to play out those hypotheticals, right? Yeah, it, it, it always is, you know, and I, one of the things that I try to do was, was when I, because we talk about like the, the, the creature creator dichotomy and everything like that. Um, I often say, you know, when you look at somebody across the street, who's protesting against you, no matter what side you're on, just remind yourself that they are a fellow image bearer. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. it's important that we just look at all of us brothers and sisters of humanity, our fellow image bearers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that that if we can, if we can adopt that idea, then I think we have a better way of looking at it. And then, and there is a divine spark within all of us, you know, there's no question about that as well. Yeah. I actually saw a quote the other day that I really liked, uh, that essentially said, um, your, your love of God is only equal to the love that you have for the person you love the least. Hmm. Good one. That, Good one. Uh, that, that one definitely stuck with me. So, you know, there's always going to be, obviously we're never going to be hundred percent in line with each other, but I think that it's important that we find these areas where we can find the commonality, but also ex acknowledge the fact that we're, there are going to be areas that we're not going to find the common ground. Of course. Mm -hmm. Um, and so speaking of not finding co common ground, <laughs> uh, I was uh, enjoying 18-year-old version of Jackson uh, taking on a couple uh, Calvinists on the street in Arizona on YouTube. And they one mostly was uh, James White, but also Jeff Durbin stepped in a little bit there too. Uh, tell me a little bit about that experience. Yeah. Um, so because I've lived in Arizona all my life, um, I've been able, as soon as I was like really interested in studying religions and visiting different places of worship, that's, that's what I've done in like the larger Phoenix metro area. And uh, one of those uh, churches that I encountered early on on YouTube due to their um, uh, kind of impressive uh, social media presence uh, was uh, Apologia Church, um, which at the time uh, Jeff Durbin, um, uh, Pastor Jeff Durbin, uh, was the uh, basically mean, uh, ma main pastor uh, for that uh, church um, uh, with his mentor, uh, kind of personal mentor being uh, 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 Reverend or Pastor James White. And um, uh, since then, uh, James White has also become a pastor of Apologia. But um, I had the opportunity to visit Apologia on uh, probably like three or four different occasions. Um, I was able to uh, talk to different uh, folks from Apologia that uh, um, uh, proselyte or, or engage in uh, outreach ministry uh, at like the Mesa temple uh, during the Easter pageant or the Christmas lights. And so because of that, um, I don't know, like I'm, I'm always drawn to dialogue. I'm interested in dialogue. And uh, Apologia uh, comes uh, from uh, the Reformed tradition, uh, so they are Calvinist, and um, and there's a number of other uh, uh, kind of aspects of their um, uh, kind of collective identity that are interesting um, in terms of like apologetics. They are presuppositionalists um, uh, in terms of 
their view of, of law and government. Uh, they espouse uh, theonomy or dominionism or Christian reconstructionism. Um, I, I'm, I, I'm still reading up on those terms, so I'm sure that there's some nuances or, or you know, technical distinctions between the three, but uh, uh, definitely in terms of theonomy, uh, they are theonomic. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a really interesting faith group. Um, I became like just sincerely interested in them uh, once I started talking to them uh, and, and visiting their church. So um, yeah, that, that curiosity and those dialogues, um, these points of difference, right, as we would hash them out, um, uh, despite my best efforts to keep those uh, civil uh, or, or, you know, just like more, more friendly, uh, there was kind of a point in which they crossed over into being interpreted as um, like, I am no longer sincerely uh, open to uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and that, uh, uh, at least in the words of uh, Jeff Durbin, um, that he had a New Testament imperative to uh, keep me out of his congregation, um, or, or that he viewed me as a wolf in sheep's clothing, basically, right? Um, and so I've, I've technically been barred uh, or, or like prohibited from uh, revisiting or stepping foot in Apologia. Um, I was very specifically told that uh, unless like I uh, experience like a personal conversion, um, that I'm not permitted to come back. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, that was interesting because that's, uh, that's the first and only church that I've ever been uh, actually banned from. Um, uh, but I, I do want to point out that I do have ties to various uh, members of Apologia still. I just went out to lunch with a, a good friend of mine who is a uh, convert to Apologia um, or, or to uh, Reformed Christianity uh, out of Mormonism. Uh, he, he's a former Latter-day Saint. Very nice guy, lives close to me, and we had great conversations. So um, you know, uh, I don't know, these things happen. Um, and, uh, at least with respect to the exchange that's on YouTube, um, there's kind of like this kind of informal debate that I'm having with, uh, James White on the street outside the Mesa temple. Um, and the, the footage that's available only captured probably like a third of our total conversation. Um, so we were talking about a number of things earlier that, uh, dealt with other subjects in kind of Mormon Christian apologetics. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, that's, that's free to watch. Uh, you know, if, if people are, are interested, I think the title is like young Mormon speaks to a Calvinist or something like that. Yeah, I'll post uh, a link in the description. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's very interesting. Um, I, I haven't uh, focused as much specifically on apologia, like since we've kind of like had a parting of ways. Um, but I remain really interested in reform Christianity and presuppositionalism and uh, theonomy. So I'm from actually my family on both sides is from a Dutch reform background, the yeah. Christian Reformed Church, which is based mm -hmm. on, on Grand Rapids, Michigan. And so we have a real um, connection to that. So I could say that I was definitely what you could call as a kid, I would call myself a charismatic Calvinist. Mm -hmm. um, I like to tell my as a joke, I like to tell my Calvinist friends, I used to be a Calvinist and then I found Jesus. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, but also I, I will say that I, even though I no longer am a Calvinist, I still think like one. Mm -hmm. So I'm still highly analytical, but um, I just learned that, uh, you know, when I was watching the 18 year old Jackson taking on these guys, I thought, first of all, you, you, you acquitted yourself quite well. No, oh, thank you. Appreciate it. And uh, I thought that there are some, you did, there are a few times where you're kind of questioning a few things where you're basically saying, yeah, but 
doesn't God have to move on me? You're making, you're putting everything on me that I'm going to be yeah. responsible, but yet it's God that makes that decision, not me. Yeah. Yeah. The, the kind of the, the crux of the uh, conversation that's available between myself and James White is uh, him essentially telling me that I need to repent and believe, uh, which is something that he uh, uh, believes that, uh, you know, is, is clearly part of his, his outreach uh, responsibilities um, as, as a pastor. Um, and myself saying that, uh, okay, well, according to reformed theology or, um, uh, uh, monergism, uh, that, uh, I, it, it, it's not possible, uh, outside of God's decree or God's call, uh, for me to repent and believe in an efficacious manner. Um, and so like my point was essentially like, um, uh, if, if we accept the tenets of reformed theology, um, like, yes, you can still tell me to repent and believe, but uh, I, I can't actually help but uh, be a Mormon or be outside of saving faith, uh, according to your um, theology. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, when I was watching it, and I've watched James White and, and Durbin for years, mm -hmm. and I think, oh, I used to be just like these guys, you know, I was just, <laughs> and, and this is the thing that people need to understand is that um, a lot of uh, Calvinists like to go after charismatics because they say, well, they're, when they see us rolling around and raising hands or whatever, they say, well, they're just operating. That's the flesh. That's the flesh. You know, yeah. they're just showing off or whatever. But I remind him, I said, you know, up here, the brain, this is also the flesh. Mm -hmm. And I think that the appeal of Calvinism is that it does appeal to the flesh that of your brain, your mind, your thoughts. In other words, they are thinking that they're they can stand back and think and judge other people. And they don't realize that that's the flesh operating as well. And that the spirit can be subjective, that our faith can be subjective. And there's no room for nuance or subjectivity at all within that worldview. Yeah. Um, you, you know, I, I've had a, a range of different experiences with Calvinists, uh, ranging from those that are more, uh, quote unquote, cage stage Calvinists, uh, you know, that uh, frankly aren't the most pleasant uh, to interact with. Uh, to those that I have like very good relationships with and that I feel very valued as an individual, right? And and so it's interesting, you know, of course, like seeing that uh, diversity uh, within a faith community that originally, um, when my exposure was limited to just apologia, um, you know, my, my perceptions of Calvinists were very much like uh, uh, not positive, let's say, right? Um, and so I, I'm pleased that I've uh, been able to kind of expand that out quite a bit. And I have much of my family would be considered reformed or, or Calvinist in some regard. So yeah. I can speak to, yeah, they're not all bad. I'm just talking about those guys in particular. Of well, of course, Jeff Durbin says that you're persona non grata and the child of wrath. <laughs> yeah. like to, where's, 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 uh, where's the fruit of the spirit there? Where's, where's grace? Where's love? Well, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's, I, I, I'm kind of baffled by how things went down as well. Um, one thing that was really interesting is that uh, when I, uh, so, so these uh, conversations or exchanges happened uh, right before I departed for my mission uh, in 2018. And so uh, I reached out to a number of people before my mission, uh, both of my faith and not of my faith, uh, asking if they'd want to receive my emails or get updates or whatever. Um, reached out to Jeff Durbin and some other folks at Apologia um, that are more like elders or uh, right um, uh, in, in various like ecclesiastical positions. And uh, the reception there was not positive. Um, 
uh, essentially, I, I was uh, told in no uncertain terms that I was uh, departing uh, for, uh, quote unquote, an eternal murder campaign um, uh, because of, you know, how they perceive uh, Mormon missions. Uh, but what was interesting, of course, is that uh, uh, my mission, uh, I, I served in Armenia, and uh, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, I'm, I'm actually kind of uh, certain uh, that uh, Armenian uh, Christians, uh, which are uh, vastly predominantly of the Armenian Apostolic Church, uh, which is uh, part of Oriental Christianity, or Oriental Orthodox Christianity, um, I'm not sure that that would fall within uh, the acceptable range of uh, uh, saving Christian faith, uh, given that um, often Roman Catholics and, and others are excluded um, from that as well, uh, from the, uh, at least the perspective of many folks at Apologia. Yeah, that's a good point. In other words, what difference would it make if they went from one, <laughs> one untrue church to another, right? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you have a uh, really interesting blog called the Apotheosis Narrative, mm -hmm. and has some really good stuff in there. And uh, one of the uh, articles I looked at was the Calvinism conundrum. So talk mm -hmm. a little bit about, well, we did talk a little bit about that, but I want to highlight that you need to read that article, the Calvinism conundrum, and it also includes the video that we are mm -hmm. talking about. Um, you, anything else you want to add to your Calvinistic uh, thing? Well, well, just basically, um, uh, the the major point of that article in particular, I do talk about the experience. I provide some commentary from uh, other Christians who are either Armenian or provisionist, um, uh, not not Armenian with an e, but Armenian. Uh, uh, but um, you know, talking about how, uh, it, at least from their perspective, uh, here was a Mormon uh, kind of uh, showing the futility of, of Calvinism when it comes to outreach situations, um, because uh, I, I have like a whole uh, kind of uh, logical, um, uh, I don't know if you want to call it chart or list or something like that. Um, but, uh, you know, essentially, if the premises are, are true, um, and, you know, it, it's hard for me to logically uh, not accept the given conclusion uh, that I cannot help uh, but to be unsaved uh, at the current moment from the Calvinistic perspective. Yeah, that's the conundrum, and it was a very well-put article. You also included another evangelical, as I recall, that, that gives yeah. a refutation and, and does talk about how the futility of a Calvinist dealing with somebody outside of conventional Christianity. Um, and, you know, I just want to kind of touch touch base with uh, a couple of things that you talk about also, and that is the, the gay and trans issues within your church. Yeah. Um, you know, I know this has been a real difficult thing. You had the November policy in, in, in 2015, and then the rescinding it a few years later. It just seems like the church doesn't seem to be handling this whole issue very well to me. Yeah, well, you know, this is a very much a struggle in a number of different faith traditions, right? Um, uh, there are the, uh, many internal conversations taking place or, or tensions uh, between those that um, in uh, changing contemporary times where uh, understandings or, or perceptions of, of gender or sexuality or uh, uh, how they intersect with morality or, or spirituality um, right, you have you have camps which uh, want to hold fast to kind of traditional understandings of uh, sexuality and gender, um, as outlined by various like maybe sacred texts uh, or or within given traditions, and then others that want to find uh, new ways uh, to include and and uh, modify or 
uh, expand uh, uh, their respective theologies to be, uh, you know, affirming and inclusive of those identities and experiences. And so, um, yeah, lots of tensions. Uh, definitely, uh, the LDS tradition is is no exception to that. In fact, uh, when it comes to American religion, um, the LDS Church uh, is often highlighted uh, along some of these, uh, uh, you know, culture wars or or battlegrounds of ideology and, and identity. Um, uh, more so uh, once um, uh, given the LDS Church's uh, significant involvement in Proposition 8 in uh, California um, and the way that uh, uh, Latter-day Saints in that area were uh, very much mobilized to help uh, um, prevent the legalization of same-sex marriage in the state. So um, this is obviously something, you know, in the evangelical community, it's torn our community apart mm -hmm. as well. And we have a very similar di dynamic going on on our side as well. Um, mm -hmm. I think that the one thing I will say to all of you evangelicals out there, um, the way um, that gay and trans and LGBTQ people have been treated in, historically by the church has been awful. And mm -hmm. we're in great need of repentance for what mm -hmm. we have done. And I'm speaking as an evangelical for our movement that we need to repent for the, the great sin that we committed against these people. Mm -hmm. um, what about women? Do you think that they'll ever get the priesthood in your church? Yeah, um, of course, there's ongoing conversations about that. Um, personally, when it comes to, for instance, uh, Joseph Smith's theology, um, uh, I, what I see what I see him doing or, or what I see him as, as trying to uh, do uh, towards the latter end of his life, uh, uh, during the Nauvoo period, uh, when he is, uh, you know, expanding and uh, innovating with uh, the temple endowment and with the respective theology and conceptions of, of priesthood and cosmology that come out of that. Um, it, it's, it's my view that uh, he seemed to very much be setting up the Relief Society as kind of this uh, equal uh, hierarchy to that of the uh, male priesthood. Uh, in the church, and that the two were meant to uh, uh, complement one another. It was very much complementarian in that sense, uh, and uh, that the Relief Society was meant to have significant uh, privileges and, and powers in the church. Um, and uh, with, within the temple, of course, uh, uh, also introduced in this time is this concept of, of both uh, men and women becoming uh, priests and priestesses uh, unto God, uh, or, or later with the belief in exaltation, uh, gods and goddesses. And so, um, yeah, uh, I think there's been some interesting shifts in recent years. Um, uh, one of the most notable uh, would probably be around 2013. Uh, uh, then, uh, well, let's see, uh, I, he might have been uh, within the first presidency at the time, I'm pretty sure he was, uh, Dallin H. Oaks, uh, gave a general conference talk where he uh, essentially argued that uh, women in the church who uh, hold uh, callings or different uh, ecclesiastical, um, uh, yeah, you know, responsibilities or or whatnot, um, uh, or or serve as missionaries, uh, function by means of the priesthood. That the that the power and authority by which they uh, do their work um, is uh, by the priesthood. So um, yeah, you know, there there are some things that would have to shift there. I think. Um, um, there's this internal debate about uh, whether or not um, priesthood, uh, like whether or not there should be like different uh, gender roles in the church uh, that impact ecclesiast ecclesiastical offices 
or whether uh, uh, anyone from any gender uh, background uh, should be able to, uh, you know, uh, hypothetically occupy any space in the church. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it kind of comes down to some of the tensions between, like, let's say, like, uh, I don't know, like third and fourth wave uh, feminism, right? Good point. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because I've heard some people have speculated that the, the priesthood keys were conferred to the, the Relief Society by Joseph. Um, and also when you were talking about independence, uh, you know, if you look at some Relief Society publications, some of their stuff in the 1930s, they were writing stuff that they couldn't get away with writing today. Yeah, yeah, in a number of different ways. We're also seeing this kind of groundswell uh, resurgence of uh, women in the church who are trying to make their voices more prominent uh, by various means. You know, the, the, this um, there, there's a number of different like pushes, right? Uh, one of the most notable would be that of the ordained women's movement, which is the most vocal about uh, uh, you know uh, advocating on behalf of female ordination in the LDS tradition. Uh, but there's also plenty of other uh, Latter-day Saint women who um, you know, might not be going that far, uh, but are still vying for more um, uh, inclusion, more uh, uh, prominence, uh, more authority or recognition or things like that. So in the 80s and 90s, some, dem some people were doing, working in demographics were doing some long-term projections about the growth of the church. And some were saying that by the middle of this century that it would become a world religion. Now, over the course of the past 20 years, we've, we haven't seen those numbers really come to pass. Uh, some people say it's the internet, the people finding things out, people are leaving. So the church 20, 30 years ago thought it was on the cusp of becoming a big, big religion. And now it's kind of just, uh, you know, a good sized Protestant denomination in the United States, right? In that context. Um, what is now, you look for the next 20, 30 years, what, what does the church look like in 20 to 30 years? What do you see the, what's yeah. going to be developing? Yeah, I mean, it just uh, depends what part of the world that we're talking about, right? Um, the, the trends that we're seeing in religion uh, uh, with respect to uh, Western Europe or, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, North America, um, uh, things definitely are slowing in terms of uh, uh, religiosity or, or dropping even, right? The, the proportion of uh, uh, self-identified non-religious individuals uh, is, is rising. Um, and uh, there's definitely many generational differences uh, driving this as well. Um, just uh, by and large, many traditions are uh, having these similar struggles about retaining youth, about uh, attracting new converts, um, and so, uh, comparatively speaking, I think uh, the LDS Church is still performing well um, uh, in in that regard. Um, you know, uh, growth is slowing and is slowed to one of the lowest points in in church history, uh, but it's still uh, positive, right? It's not uh, in the red. Um, and uh, there's other traditions that are, you know, suffering greater losses of numbers. Um, so uh, when it comes to attracting new converts, where the LDS church is growing uh, are in places like West Africa or other parts of Africa, um, uh, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, parts of Latin America. Um, there's still uh, sizable numbers that are uh, converting or joining the LDS church there. Uh, but of course, you know, retention is always a, a, an ongoing uh, problem. Yeah, and it's same here. You know, we got the same, basically same demographic situation happening as well. Yeah. Um, so you served a mission in Armenia. Mm -hmm. And one, you're, you're very interested in that topic, the people, the country. 
Uh, what got you interested in that? Yeah, well, um, what I prior to my mission, prior to receiving my mission call, I was already interested in Eastern Christianity when it came to my uh, kind of career path uh, that I envisioned for myself, uh, just because I thought that um, it's a lot less uh, oversaturated uh, than, you know, maybe New Testament studies or something like that. Uh, and the academy can be uh, a really difficult place uh, in many respects. And so, um, I don't know, I was just like really interested uh, for those reasons. Um, so when I did get my mission call to Armenia, I thought it was just absolutely heaven sent for a number of reasons, uh, but that was definitely one of them. And as soon as I got to the country or once I started really looking into the, uh, the country and its, its rich history, um, I absolutely fell in love with it. Um, so just uh, briefly, um, Armenia was the first officially Christian country in the world. Uh, they became uh, Christian in 301 AD. Uh, which is, uh, you know, 24 years before the Council of Nicaea. Um, they uh, trace their Christian roots uh, to the apostles Thaddeus and Bartholomew. And uh, Christianity has been just an absolutely essential uh, aspect of Armenian identity uh, since then. Um, and it's been something that uh, has definitely uh, helped them uh, in the face of many challenges, uh, probably most notably the uh, 1915 Armenian genocide, which was uh, perpetrated by the Ottoman Empire, um, uh, their, their faith is what uh, has largely helped them survive in many different respects. And so um, over there, it's just such a rich history. Um, you know, here, here in my background, uh, I, I have a, a church um, uh, in, in Armenia. And uh, I, I was able to just visit the, the coolest places, uh, very rich, uh, you know, historical sites. Uh, there is churches that I stood in that, you know, date back to the fifth century. Um, uh, yeah. And so it was just unparalleled uh, in terms of what I had experienced prior. It felt like I was uh, almost like walking around in, a, in something out of like Narnia or something like that, right? Like the, the, it had this very like medieval, uh, ethereal, like, um, uh, fantastic feel to it. So, um, the, the people are just amazing. The most hospitable I've ever encountered, uh, the, the culture, the history, the language, I just love it so much. So, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to hopefully, uh, studying it more and, and contributing to scholarship on the subject and, and help, uh, building, uh, pathways of understanding, uh, between this part of the world and, uh, the kind of the global West, if you will. And you've had interactions with the Armenian community in the mm -hmm. American Southwest as well, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've really gotten to know the uh, Armenian community here in Arizona and uh, have been uh, introduced to a number of individuals um, of Armenian descent. And uh, I know that in around the early 19th century, there was a large uh, group of Armenians that came to Los Angeles that were uh, what you could almost call proto-Pentecostals. Mm -hmm. um, and they actually played a major role in the Azusa Street Revival um, mm -hmm. and bringing Pentecostalism here in the United States. What has been your interactions with Pentecostals in that context? Yeah, so um, uh, definitely like, so once, uh, once the Soviet Union uh, fell, um, Armenia as a country uh, began to open itself up to various uh, outsiders uh, or outside religious movements. And so you see uh, Latter-day Saints, you see Jehovah's Witnesses, you see Pentecostals and Evangelicals uh, enter into Armenia and uh, really start to influence uh, some of the, the uh, Christianity there, or at least establish a presence there. Um, and so when it comes to Pentecostalism in particular, 
Um, I uh, encountered uh, different uh, Pentecostals uh, in Armenia. Uh, now, mind you, uh, probably like 98% of Armenia would identify as Armenian apostolic. And so uh, all of these groups would be still be like significant religious minorities there. Um, but when it came to Pentecostals, um, uh, I often found that a number of them uh, were almost like more receptive to converting to Mormonism uh, because uh, there was a number of like uh, important like social dynamics that uh, could often keep Armenians from joining the LDS church uh, because uh, this sense of uh, their, their Christian identity was so tied to their uh, ethnic identity or, or sense of self. And so there's many Armenians that uh, um, the thought of uh, leaving the Armenian apostolic church, uh, it was just uh, really difficult for them um, and uh, understandably so. Now, for those that came from other traditions uh, that had already, you know, potentially left the uh, uh, apostolic church, um, it was uh, sometimes easier for them to make that leap. Um, and so I encountered various Armenians, uh, both in terms of local leaders or members that still had this charismatic or Pentecostal flair to them. Uh, and, and just in terms of uh, the gifts of the spirit uh, or, or different uh, uh, charismatic, um, uh, you know, events or phenomena, uh, Armenians very much, uh, Armenian Latter-day Saints are very much prone to uh, visions or dreams or um, in some contexts, let's say speaking in tongues or uh, things like that. Um, one one uh, branch president uh, that I worked closely with in Armenia uh, definitely came from a charismatic background. And I could tell that in his preaching style, in his, uh, in uh, his, the, the flavor of, uh, of Latter-day Saint theology that uh, he uh, taught over the pulpit. So it was really interesting to see that because uh, I, I don't know, I was already kind of aware and, and had an understanding of Pentecostalism before my mission. Um, and so many of the other missionaries didn't really pick up on some of those subtle differences, uh, but uh, I thought they were fascinating. My good friend, Christopher Thomas, wrote the book, uh, Pentecostal Reads the Book of Mormon. Yeah. And his basic says, this is a Pentecostal book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I can see how it could resonate. Right, uh, right. Absolutely. So it is true. It is, I can see how that, that could definitely could. So um, I enjoyed our conversation that we had today, Jackson. Um, I want the interaction, the cross-pollinization. What you just described in Armenia would be a type of cross-pollinization even. For sure. And, uh, but it's important that we build bridges and we knock down barriers between our communities and have conversations, have adult conversations about mm -hmm. our differences, acknowledge them, but also realize that um, there are some similarities that we, we can embrace and work in those areas as well. Um, Jackson, thanks so much for coming on today. Yeah, thank you, Steve. I really appreciate it. So I just want you to like and subscribe, hit the notification bell uh, so that you can be informed when the new video is going to be out. I'm going to provide a link to that cool video where he takes on the uh, James White. I'm also <laughs> going to send a link, uh, post a link in the description as well to the Apotheosis Narrative. It's a great uh, blog. Check it out and you all have a great day.